If you've noticed the sermon title this morning, and I hope you have, you may think, knowing in advance that I'm going to talk about Charles Wesley, that there's something arrogant about this title, the man who caused, helped believers to think. If you have, for example, some Lutheran or Presbyterian background, you may want to tell me that uh, Martin Luther and John Calvin did a good deal to help people to think. And of course, if you have some Roman Catholic heritage, and probably most of us do if we go back enough generations, uh, you then would certainly want to say that uh, there were numbers of people like Thomas Aquinas that they could claim that made people think. But Charles Wesley, uh, Charles Wesley, you know because so many of you here are budding theologians or, or fully bloomed ones, that uh, Charles Wesley is not a theologian. He wrote some poetry and we sing his hymns and he was kind of a first assistant to his brother John, but you haven't found his name in the books of theology. Indeed, if you hadn't come here, you wouldn't find too much of the theology of John Wesley in the books you've studied. Fortunately, we're more enlightened here, uh, so you've gotten a lot of John Wesley. But Charles Wesley, theologian? Poet, yes. Theologian, what do you mean? Well, just this. It's no Methodist arrogance on my part that makes me say this. Uh, to the contrary, uh, it is just a way of looking at things. The people that I've mentioned in other heritages, John Calvin, Martin Luther, Thomas Aquinas, and dozens, maybe scores of others, were great theologians. We have some great theologians today, some of them, thanks be to God, on our own campus. But mostly then, as theologians, they are theologians for the sake of other theologians either full-time, big-time, major league theologians or everyday theologians like pastors in local churches. And so, as a result, those theologians have a realm unto themselves. It's the realm of other professionals, professional theologians, whether local pastor or seminary or college professors or writers. Charles Wesley was not that kind of theologian. Charles Wesley was a theologian for the people. And that's no reason to apologize for him. Indeed, in some respects, it's a reason to exult in him. But more specifically and more honestly, it is to say that God hath set in the church varieties of ministries. And one ministry is to teach other specialists. And another ministry is to teach all the people of God. And Charles Wesley taught all the people of God with his theology. He did so in this remarkable way. He knew the theology of the past, both Catholic and Orthodox and Anglican and Protestant. He knew it from the hands of Martin Luther because his brother had come to that enlightenment of faith by hearing the writings of Martin Luther. He knew it through the Moravians because he and his brother had been so impregnated and stirred by the Moravians. So he knew worlds of theology 
but he knew a way to get at the cross to people who didn't have a theological heritage. He gave it to people with rhyme and meter so they could sing it. Because he knew if they would sing it, they'd get it in their whole being. Music is an interesting instrument. Music, you see, if we have proper words, will make us think. If we have good music, it will elevate our whole personalities while we sing. But at the same time, it will energize our feet and our hands and our bodies because music does that to you. And with it all, therefore, the things we get on our head begin to saturate our whole person. Therefore, music and the singing of something is so powerful, as I indicated to you yesterday. It shapes nations for goodness or for hell. And it shapes people the same way. And Charles Wesley, therefore, taught people to think their religion by giving it to them with rhyme and meter and the help of some tunes. The tunes did help in most cases, not always. Sometimes the tunes were too heavy and they pulled down the thought to the point where nobody really cared and you gave up. You decided it was better just to recite the words than to try to sing them to that kind of tune. There were other tunes that distracted from the words because sometimes tunes get into our feet and our hands to the point that we forget to let them into our head. That is, yes, music makes you tap your feet. A certain quality of music makes you clap your hands. And sometimes we can tap our feet and clap our hands, but not turn on our mind. Charles Wesley wouldn't have been pleased with that. He'd want you to be as happy as you could be in singing it, but he surely wanted you to be happy with your brain operating. Now he had a basis for that. His basis was quite simple. The words of the Apostle Paul. You've heard them. Let me read them to you again. I will sing praise with the spirit, but I will sing praise with the mind also. The Apostle Paul said that to the people at Corinth because the people in Corinth loved things spiritual. They were people who had great responses to the emotions of life. Their culture was such that it encouraged that kind of thing. And they, in the process, therefore, when they moved into this new experience with Christ and with the Holy Spirit, the spirituality of it really got to them. And so Paul had to say to them, but we don't have to say much to our people nowadays, the Spirit's not enough. Worship with the Spirit, worship with the mind also. When you sing, he said, sing in the Spirit, but sing with the understanding. He told the same kind of thing to the people of Colossae. Listen to this again. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. And with gratitude in your hearts, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. So when they sang Wesley's hymns, they sang them with excitement and love to God and deep emotion. 
They wept often because Christ had saved them from the sins they were thinking about. They rejoiced with tears because they saw the suffering of our Lord at Calvary. They rejoiced with expectation because they knew they were headed to heaven. But they also had a brain to go with it. And that was just right because it's part of what our Lord said is the first commandment when he was asked what the commandment is, the biggest one that covers them all. And he gave us in two parts, as you know. And that first one was, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, it shouldn't be difficult to tell a congregation of Asbury students and friends and alumni and professors, staff, that we believe that you should love God with your mind. Because, of course, we believe that here. Only not necessarily so. We kind of compartmentalize the whole thing. We go to class to take care of our minds, and then we go to our devotions to take care of our soul and our spirit. And, of course, the ideal is, as one of the great spiritual leaders of another generation said, that the desk should also be an altar. That when you're looking at the computer, you should see God. You should, as you look at all of this, find the Spirit of God in you, in your mind, so that you're moved of heart, but you're moved of mind also. And so we should be loving God with our minds. I suspect that sometimes we get love mixed up with romance in our religion, so that I have a feeling, I don't really know what God says all the time, I wish I did. Well, it's just as well I don't. Uh, but uh, I, I, I think that sometimes when we say to God, uh, I love you so much, God might say, are you sure? Have you thought about that? Because the love of God has some thought in it. Thought that drives us to dedication and digging and living in ways that simply cannot be replicated any other way. So this is, then, what Wesley was about. He wanted the people to have this kind of full gospel, a gospel that made them say, I know it's true because I've experienced it, and a gospel that said, I know it's true because the book says so, the holy book, and I know the book. Now it was a strange group of people to whom Wesley preached and sang for, and Wesley was a strange one to do it. You would think that the kind of people who would have appealed to the natives of the British Isles in that day would be a pretty abject crowd of preachers. You could imagine some, you know, some of the things that some of us have heard, some good old backwoods preachers that we say, He's a good old boy, and uh, we therefore let him get by with a lot because we know that he loves God and he's earnest. But Charles wasn't a good old boy. He was a very stuffy Oxford scholar. That's what he was. And you can't imagine, therefore, that he gets with these miners and shopkeepers at best, factory workers, pathetic souls, hadn't seen water to wash their bodies in months, and he'd look at them and could love them and could talk to them so that they said, let's sing it with him. 
because he knew how to talk that way. Strange thing. He worked with their minds. He worked with their spirits. And it worked. It worked indeed. The, uh, the first big part, of course, of what Charles was doing had to do with the scriptures. Uh, I think one of our weaknesses in reading the hymns of Charles Wesley is that we just don't begin to appreciate how much scripture is in them. Uh, I'm going to quote for you something here that you'll find in this book. I'm glad they're giving these books to you. It's magnificent that they're doing so. Uh, so you'll have something to store away. Uh, but uh, <laughs> just in case you read something from them, uh, you'll find this quote from J. Ernest Rattenberry. He said, he's a British scholar, if the Bible were lost, we might extract much of it from Wesley's hymns. They contain the Bible in solution. Now, what does he mean by that? Uh, this, that in Wesley's hymns, the Bible is dissolved. It's in solution. Sometimes people think that if in a sermon we quote the scriptures that it's a biblical sermon. It ain't necessarily so. It's when you dissolve the Bible into the sermon that it becomes a biblical sermon. So he said, you find in Wesley's hymns the Bible in solution, in dissolving, so that you really get it then, the way it comes to you in the scriptures. The Bible in solution. And Rattenberry makes his point. He picks just, he said at random, I'll take his word for it, from Wesley's journal, 60, a, a passage. There were 60 words in it, he said. 41 of them were biblical quotes. He didn't put them in quotation marks. They just flowed in his speech. He knew the scriptures that way, and it flowed that way. He wrote, of course, thousands and thousands of hymns. He wrote 5,100 to be specifically a commentary on the Bible, a devotional commentary. Uh, we don't, they're available uh, for scholarly books and such, but uh, we don't see most of those. But he was trying simply to make the whole Bible available in dissolved form, so to speak, in this devotional study. Thus, uh, loving the scriptures, loving with your mind, and taking the rhyme and the meter all the way through. Then there was with that sound doctrine. Uh, I, I noted with pleasure a hymn that we're going to be singing, uh, or pardon me, that uh, uh, Dr. Whitworth will be playing and uh, if you listen to Dr. Whitworth's playing, you often can tell what verse he's playing because he plays the words. He doesn't just play the music, he tries to get into the words. But uh, you'll hear that during the communion time. It's one of my favorite hymns. Uh, if you were to be, if, if when I'm alone driving out here, for example, and you were with me, in which case, of course, I'd no longer be alone. Uh, but. Uh, <laughs> If that could happen, uh, you might some mornings hear me sing this song because I come back to it so often. O oh, love divine, what hast thou done? 
the immortal God hath died for me. The Father's co-eternal Son bore all my sins upon the tree. The Son of God for me hath died. My Lord, my love is crucified. Now when you sing that, you're singing a powerful amount of theology. What hast thou done? The immortal God hath died for me. Some man on the street, ignorant of the purposes of God, angry at life, resenting everything, says, what in the world has God ever done for me? Charles Wesley would say, well, to begin with, he died for you. The immortal God hath died for me. My Lord, my love is crucified. I said to you a few moments ago that there's a danger that we confuse love with romance in some of our language, but Charles Wesley was never afraid to love God and to address Jesus as his love, my Lord, my love. And when he comes to the end of that great hymn, he does something more of the same kind. Wesley takes us out to Golgotha's Hill, where the crowds are going by on that interstate outside Jerusalem. And because they're walking and walking beside a donkey, maybe, they have time to look at him. And Wesley makes us look at him with them. Behold him, all ye that pass by, the bleeding prince of life and peace. Come, sinners, see your Savior die, and say, was ever grief like his. Come, feel with me his blood applied. My Lord, my love is crucified. Wesley takes us right there where he is. And it's packed full of theology as you look at it. You're going to get some theology in a few weeks now, beginning, I guess, on what they now call Black Friday, which means the business will go into the black that day because you'll go to the shopping mall. And, of course, you'll hear... Uh, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and I saw Mommy Kissing Santa Claus, and a few others have been developed since I was last in a shopping mall. Uh, but uh, then, for sure, somewhere you'll hear the music and maybe the words. Hark the herald angels sing. Some of you may have wondered why we chose that this morning, this team that was working on the service. Uh, was it because we were trying to get a head start on business this Christmas season? Or didn't we know what it was about? Well, it's about great theology, but it's a Christmas song. And when you hear it in the shopping mall, stop for a minute and say to God, I know there's enough theology in what's being sung right now to save the whole world. Will you save somebody today before this is over? Some soul that in this place or some other mall well, suddenly what, hear what it says. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. 
peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. Well, you see, our culture is not really very friendly to God. Not really. They know him when they need help. But they don't like his severity of judgment. They don't like his laws. They think he's not at all up with the times. God has no such place in their minds. And to those people, Charles Wesley says, God and man can be reconciled. I can get them together. I'll bring them together again. And then the song gets even more unappealing to our present culture. It talks about this child who is born of a virgin, framed in flesh, the Godhead see. What is that teacher of Galilee? Our culture loves him as a teacher, especially when he's cozy and not too judgmental. And they generally don't know those passages, so they feel safe liking Jesus. But this is Godhead in the flesh. Charles Wesley has another great phrase. It's not in one of the hymns we know more popularly. Frankly, I don't know anymore where it is, though again, I learned it when I was researching the lectures that, uh, in this little book. It's a phrase that says that uh, of God. It says, uh, God contracted to a span. You know what a span is? We don't use that language anymore. Uh, but a span is the distance between a man's thumb and a little finger. That's a span. When people didn't have a ruler or a tape measure around, they measured that way, a span. And Charles Wesley said, what did God do at his coming to earth? God was contracted to a span. The heaven and the heaven of heavens can't contain him, but love could contract him to a span. Go then to this place in Bethlehem and see a teenage girl, not even to her middle teens probably, who is in the agony of childbirth like hundreds of millions of women before her. And she comes to that moment that no man can understand, that most women inherently feel having had a baby or not, because it is so much part of the woman. When the agony is so great that if they could, they'd stop, but now they can't stop, and there's one great push, and the baby appears. And Joseph holds it for a moment in that workman's hand. God. My God, heaven can't hold him, but Joseph can. What a gospel we have. What a God we have. That God would come into our world like a baby. 
as a baby. Well, this is emotive singing when you're singing about the cross and the birth of our Lord. But it's also singing in Wesley's hymns that make you think. You have to say, do I buy that or not? Do I buy that or will I try to have a cheap gospel that just makes me comfortable? Well, I want a gospel that fits the culture of my times or will I buy the gospel that is offered me through Christ and his power? And it makes you think. Interesting thing, those people that long generation, those generations, centuries ago, uh, who were converts to early Methodism, a great share of them illiterate, gradually becoming, Ill becoming literate with the help of the Wesley brothers. Those people, I think if you got them in a discussion today, in the average home of average middle-class college graduate Methodists, the college graduate Methodists would be lost and bewildered by their conversations of theology. Now that's partly the times, because in our times, people have so many competing ideas to deal with. It's partly our fault, we preachers and teachers, that we haven't insisted that our people learn. And it's partly, of course, the prejudice of the times that says that if there is such a thing as religious studies, it's certainly a minor and a very small minor at that. But it's fascinating to me that these simple folk would know their Bibles and their theology better than most of the people in our congregations. I repent to God again and again at this point in my life that I didn't teach my people more besides on Sunday morning. I did some, but not enough, not enough, not enough. People need to know this gospel. They need to use their brains as well as their aesthetic nature and all of the rest. Well, there's your story. Two men born in a town, waterlocked much of the year on many occasions, Epworth, England, then go off and somehow survive their faith and nurture it at Oxford, failed badly in America, go back home defeated, and one day the dyspeptic Charles gets saved and healed, and three days later his older brother, an even more difficult case, gets saved, and they begin to preach and to sing, and the people are made different wherever they went. And part of it was because they sang it. They put the gospel and their theology and their knowledge of the Bible into rhyme and meter, gave a tune, and they sang it. I'd love for us to sing again like that. Those were the days, my friends. I see no reason why we can't have them again. God love us.
Amen.